It's not every week you get cheered, folks. Yeah, there you go. Since I haven't preached yet, I might be hopeful. <coughs> Today we'll be looking at Hebrews 8, 1 through 9, 10, which is very much a continuation of last week's sermon. Uh, I'm glad John got to deal with the order of Melchizedek, both passages. They ended up being split by Greg's admonition, and uh, I didn't have to dig into the, the depths of Melchizedek or make the, uh, the word of rebuke known. Uh, usually my assigned lot, but that's, a, that's another point. Uh, before we dig into this section... I want to share something that I ran across this week. Uh, last week, as a part of John helping us to sort of frame our minds in this Old Testament world, he showed a video, and he's done this a number of times from the Bible Project. And in my, some of my reading, I ran across a list of seven pillars for reading the Bible that the guys behind the Bible Project have their goals in their videos, their podcasts, uh, other materials. And, and I just briefly want to read through these. They're, they'll be up on the screen with a little bit of word of explanation for each one. And I'd like to share them with you. So the, the first slide uh, related to this, the Bible is human and divine literature. God works with his human partners in and through the Spirit, not to override or diminish human agency, but to empower his people to become vehicles of God's heavenly life here on earth. He blesses to be a blessing. The Bible is neither a collection of golden tablets dropped from heaven nor the work of human writers simply trying their best. It is a divinely inspired library of spirit-filled but human-written texts. The spirit empowers human authors to write, number two, unified literature. The Bible has many authors, many literary styles and themes, but it tells one story about God's rescue of humanity to be his partners in ruling the world. The Hebrew Bible is compiled, its text woven together as a unified story anticipating an anointed royal priestly prophet who arrives and bring, brings redemption in the New Testament. In other words, the Bible is messianic literature. The story of the Bible, 
of all of its main themes comes to their fulfillment in Jesus' life, in his death, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. In the Hebrew Bible, characters like Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David foreshadow a Messiah, but fall short. The full collection is desperate for the New Testament spirit-filled Messiah to redeem humanity from sin and death. The Old and New Testaments are meant to be read as communal literature. We truly need a community of learning for both understanding and self-critique. In our journey of understanding the scriptures, the Bible is primarily written in community, and it's meant to be read in community. This is the pattern found in scripture itself, and it helps us to overcome our blind spots. As modern people, we need help understanding the Bible as ancient literature. Reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience, and it requires patience, humility, effort, and love. There are huge differences between the cultural assumption of the biblical authors and that of modern readers. Because the Bible is not just divine but also human, it reflects the history, culture, and language of ancient people. Part of reading it correctly is learning to read it through ancient eyes. This takes a lifetime of reading the Bible as meditation literature. Scripture is intentionally dense. It is designed to not be fully understood on the first reading, or even the 50th reading. Rather, it requires years of consistent rereading so that the meaning of each part only makes sense in the light of the whole. The Bible is an artistic experience or artistic masterpiece calling for a lifetime of meditation. Its wisdom and truth are open secrets hidden in poetic and literary devices that come alive the more they're engaged. When we read the Bible this way, it is wisdom literature. All of the diverse literary styles in the Bible reveal God's wisdom and invite us into a journey of character transformation, shaping a new kind of human as we meditate in community on the unified story of the Bible and the pieces that make it up. It is able to make us wise and transform us into the image of the Messiah from glory to glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for diligent students of your word.
who've pondered it over and over and over. We thank you for the writing, writings that we have from across millennia. Not only the text of Scripture, but the writings of men and women who've given their lives in an attempt to understand it more fully and to apply it more perfectly. Help us as a community of people to listen closely when your word is read. Help us to read it deeply. Lord, we pray that the promise from Hebrews chapter 8, gathered up out of Jeremiah 31, is true of us. That even today you are writing your laws on our hearts and our minds that you are shaping us into kingdom people. Help us to lift our eyes up to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to keep our eyes focused on him as we run this race. And help us to remember who he truly is, the Messiah the prophet, priestly king who is seated in your very presence in the most holy place today, interceding for us. We rejoice in the perfect sacrifice that he has already offered to you for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, Help us to be people who live in that promise, in these great promises. Let our lives be shaped by them every day. In Jesus we pray. Amen. As we've been journeying through Hebrews, uh, we've over and over again noticed a comparison between Jesus and some of those who've come before. As was mentioned in these uh, seven pillars from the Bible Project guys, uh, there are incredible role models, but every one of them falls short. It's only when Jesus comes on the scene that God's perfect representative is present. We get to hear from God's own heart in Jesus. And so Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 begins with the, the writer, the speaker saying, the point of what we're saying in this, all that he's written about Melchizedek, all he's written so far about the priesthood, is that we do have such a great high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven 
and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, Jesus, also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. That's the reason that whole discussion of Melchizedek is so relevant. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy, a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as much superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. It's founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And you think he's going to go into a detailed list of the failings of the covenant. But I want you to notice what he does, the first covenant. But God found fault with the people and said... The failures are not in the law. The failures are in the would-be law keepers. And God knows that. And God's using even that as a tutor, a, a, a preparation way toward the perfect way forward. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. You see all of that time in Exodus? It's groundwork for what Hebrews is saying here in chapter 8. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, says the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand, the, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place 
which had the golden altar of incense, the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place during the time of the tabernacle had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying to the time of the new order. So what's so great about the new covenant? I, I just want to review seven affirmations that are made in this section of eight in the first half of chapter nine. Number one, Jesus, our superior high priest, mediates a superior covenant based on superior promises. God made some incredible promises to Moses on the mount regarding Israel. But here in Hebrews 8, verse 6, the affirmation is made, God's made some far greater promises to us through Jesus. We used to sing an old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. And boy, I can remember some southern twangs on that one. Standing. But there's a message there that we need a part of his efforts to help them recognize you're following the greatest one is he's the bearer of greater promises if like me you've spent some of your life struggling with legalism I want you to recognize the writer of Hebrews isn't saying our best deal is that we've got better laws. Is it we've got better promises. And in this list, he's going to include some of those promises. But there'll be many more in this book. Number two, he affirms that God puts his laws in the minds and hearts of his people. Chapter 8, verse 10. Now, 
this is one of those dense sections, I believe. It it's grows more clear for me the more I spend in this section and the more I think about it and the more I reflect on it and the more my life is a life of meditation. In Israel, every child who was born, every male child, was circumcised on the eighth day as a part of the covenant people. And then godly, spiritual, law-keeping parents spend the next 12 years raising that son with an incredible intentional purpose that at 12 he will recite a lengthy section of the Torah and then accept it upon himself. And from that point forward, he will be counted as a mature part of Israel. His bar mitzvah. The new covenant is different in that anybody who's a part of it, truly under it, already knows the Lord. Now, I don't think the Hebrew writer is affirming that our children shouldn't be included in spiritual training and learning. But there's a differentiation between those who have reached a point of knowing who God is and accepting that. In that the laws aren't primarily written on stone tablets, first by God and then by Moses. After Moses had broken them the second time, he got to write them off. See, teachers, there, there may be biblical proof texting for writing off. Moses got to write them. He got to carve them the second time. Did you catch that in our study through Exodus? God puts his laws in the minds and hearts of his people. I don't know that I can fully explain that to you. I'm quite sure I can't answer all of the questions you might raise about that. But I raise that from the standpoint of we all have individual responsibility. I've shared this before. Those of you who've been around for a long time, you've probably heard me use it too many times. Wish I'd give it up. A uh, shocking point in the movie Dances with Wolves was after he and the Native American woman that became his wife had a child. There's a scene where she's got the, the young toddler and she's eating corn off of a cob and she's chewing it very carefully and then she takes two fingers and she takes some out of her mouth and she gives it to the child. And I'll have to honestly confess my first response is, ooh, and then there's almost this immediate recognition. There's no Gerber. This is the food processor God created. 
This is a loving mother doing what loving mothers did for millennia before their own children had the teeth to chew with. She was pre-chewing their food. And that's appropriate in the right setting. It's loving. But at some point, we've got to learn to chew our own food. And at some level, Hebrews seems to connect it to this area of being covenant people. What has God written on your heart? How are you opening yourself up so that he will write it on your mind? So that others won't have to say, we know Kathy, you really ought to know the Lord. I'm picking on Kathy because I've known her for a long time. And she doesn't need me to say, know the Lord. She won't be insulted at me using her for sake of illustration. God has written his laws on our minds and on our hearts. A little later in chapter 8, verse 10, God's promise or his presence is promised. Israel's history is one of them calling out to God and him drawing near and them turning away and them allowing them to build this distance into their relationship. I'm not denying that that's theoretically possible for us. I'm affirming it shouldn't be something that ever happens easily or because we just let things drift. Recently, I had an interesting experience. Uh, I went to have my hearing tested. Get you in this little box room. The lady steps out. She said, hands me a little controller and says, push it when you hear the sound. I'm thinking I'm a little harder hearing in my left ear than my right ear. So she said, we'll start with the left ear. I failed it in both ears. See my hearing aids up here this morning? I had grown dull of hearing. Guys, if your wives have said you're not paying attention, or they've had that strange look when you respond that obviously you didn't hear what they were saying. One of two things has happened. You too need a hearing test. Or worse yet, you're tuning her out intentionally. And the second option is not better than the first. Trust me. There are emotional 
consequences that are far deeper than the physical reality. The problem is when you get hearing aids is you start hearing things you've not heard in quite a long while. Seriously. Their recommendation is for the first few days putting them in for a minimum of eight hours to train your brain again to what you've been missing. Now, the audiologist who administered my hearing test, I don't know if it's by birth or training, has a loud voice. And so she walks me through putting them in when I go back after they've been shipped to her according to what I needed. And the only thing I hear in that office is her talking. And she says, has it helped your hearing? And I tried to think of the best way to communicate this, but I finally just said, I did not need hearing aids to hear you. She said, well, that's probably fair. I really thought she would give me the hearing test again. And I would find out whether those deficiencies had been overcome. Now I'll go back for a one-month checkup soon. Maybe it'll happen then. And if not, I'll probably ask for it because... I'm interested to see that graph to see if it's better and how much it's better and in what places maybe it's not better. I don't know that automatically, you know, louder is better. But anyway, dullness in the spiritual realm can be a deadly thing. And just like physical hearing, usually you don't just lose a little bit and stop. Why do you think Hebrews is this building and building and building and building of superior, 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 superior? I think the Holy Spirit at work through this writer is reaching for every possible way to capture the attention of those who are growing dull. Not all of us are motivated in the same ways. There's some benchmarks that some of us don't care a flip about. I'm failing in that one? Okay. Sounds about right. But is there an area where we recognize this tugs on my heart? This causes me to be motivated to do better. For me, I wanted to have my hearing right so I could hear my wife. 
And it was obvious it wasn't working. And it was causing her frustrations. Now, guys, I'll, I'll let you know if you're going, or ladies, it, you know, women can have hearing loss too. When you go in for your assessment, they recommend you bring somebody with you from your family. I wonder why they do that. Well, you're not hearing if you have hearing loss. And there are times you don't know what you're missing. You know, you've seen the joke, you've heard it where, you know, well, that was a strange way to start a conversation. Well, it's only because you've missed the first half of it or more. It wasn't the start of the conversation. Are there times in, in when we get to passages in God's Word and we're sort of shocked? Well, that was a strange thing to say. Maybe that's a sign you've not been paying attention. It's sort of like in the class when you were a kid and all of a sudden, this one works out a little bit sometimes. It's a little aggravating. So if you see me pushing it back in, I want to have it back in there, right? So it doesn't flop out on the floor. Where, you know, the teacher's going on and on and on and you just sort of drift off into a daydream. And then she says something that draws you back front and center like a quiz or, or is calling your name and you're concerned the question has already happened. God's presence, his work in our lives is a promise that, that we need to hold on to. Greg has been admonishing us in this class on communication, good communication, that one of the, the best ways to communicate through difficulties and disagreements is for each participant to have this hyper-consciousness of God's presence. Would I say that with Jesus in the room? Might be a question. Would I say it that way if I saw Jesus sitting here at the table with us? God's presence can be a powerful check on our weakest traits and tendencies. Number four, I've already talked about everyone will know the Lord. Number five, God will forgive our sins. Now, I'm not going to go really deep into this because John's going to move into the next section that, that really unpacks that even more. One of the differences between life with Jesus and life under the law of Moses is the law of Moses is very meticulous in identifying right and wrong, sin, violation of God's heart and his purposes, the prescribed behavior that you take in response to that, and there's always a remembrance of it. Do you ever do something as a kid that your mother or grandmother or whoever brought you up 
just couldn't ever let you free of? It's like, you know, Mama, that, that was 40 years ago. Do we, do we really have to keep bringing that one up? A part of what the Hebrew writer touches on here in chapter 8 and then in chapter 9 is God will remember them no more. See, David had that psalm where he, you know, we sing about it from time to time, remember not the sins of my youth. You know, there's some things we've done when we were teenagers, your parents, your grandparents, young people, that we, we're thankful. Everybody's cell phone didn't have one. Didn't have a camera recording our worst moments. They were not documented. Thank God. And, and the, the point of this passage is he's not going to remember them. The very one who has the right to hold us accountable in will and in rebellion is not going to shame us with the moments he's forgiven. As a young person wrestling with some of this tendency toward legalism, there were times when I had this horrifying dream that it was, you know, this is your life and God's got this big screen and everybody's watching my worst moments ever. Deepest, darkest, worst stuff. Hebrews 8 9 says, John, that voice is not from God. thing keeps going dark on me. Number six, we're granted entrance into the most holy place, the way opened by Jesus. The fact that Jesus has entered into heaven's inner sanctuary and is seated at God's right hand has practical implications for our lives in Hebrews chapter 9. A way has been opened up for us. In chapter 9, verse 9, he's offered a better sacrifice which is able to clear our consciences from sin. That's one of the promises that I needed reminder of when I was having that this is your life dream, John. The Holy Spirit will work to cleanse us of that sense of guilty conscience. And remove the power of the enemy from our lives to just keep beating us up with the same old stuff. That's not who we are. We're a people in relationship, in a community with God through Jesus. We have better promises. We have a God who's faithful. 
in the Bible Project Seven Pillars, one of the things they talked about is that you know it, it's a cross-cultural experience. And one of the places where it's very cross-cultural is their understanding of covenant and our understanding of contract. And I'm not going to go in great depths on that, but I want to touch on it briefly. The closest place I think we have in our culture to covenant language is marriage. And yet there's a distinct difference between that and the covenant relationship of God with Israel and God with us through Jesus. Hopefully, all of our covenant marriage relationship is between equals. I'm not going to automatically assume that because we've got some cultural overhang from a time when that wasn't true at all and could not be assumed. And there's still much of our world where it's not true. But when you extend that kind of thinking to God, it breaks down very quickly. But the Hebrew concept of covenant is always between a stronger king, regional overlord, and those who are lesser. And the covenant is always initiated by the stronger. Because the lesser really doesn't have any right to demand terms of agreement. And what Jesus does is as a human, he overcomes that last barrier. As the perfect man, he crosses into the heavenly realm, the most holy place. He's there for you. He's there for me. He's there for us. He's, he's there for others who don't know him yet. And that's where a part of our responsibility begins to grow, to be on mission with Jesus. We've got good news to share with others. God's opened a better way. Years ago, when I was working with a couple of guys in the Rutherford County Jail, They'd started a discovery Bible study during their breaks in the exercise room. And it was a 30 by 30 square of concrete with one garage door about two and a half feet tall, I don't know, 20 feet wide. On sunny days, they would open those up and let the sunlight come in. And that was as close to outside as those guys got the whole time they were in Rutherford County Jail. And it's still that way. No going out into the yard. And so they had an imaginary fence across the middle. They'd ball up some socks and they'd play volleyball back and forth, some of them. Others would walk around the perimeter 
And these guys would get over in a corner and they would do a daily Bible study. Any chance they had to be in there. And they got to a passage where it said, God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And right at that moment, these two Laotian guys got, who were talking got there. And one of them turned shocked and he said, what, what did you say? And he said, this passage says, God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And the guy said, that's, that's not what Buddhism teaches. Buddhism teaches you get, you, you reap what you sow. Your karma. We're in here because we did wrong out there. So I hear about this the next week when I visited the guys. And he's wanting to know what kind of materials you got on Buddhism. Th these guys are interested. But I want you to notice the thing that caught their attention, or at least one of them, was grace. God's done something new through Jesus. And that's what people around us need to hear. We don't need to beat them up about their shortcomings. We need to celebrate and rejoice and, and live out of what's been written on our minds and our hearts that God's grace has been given. And we get to live in that. And we get to experience the joy of our consciences being cleaned from guilt. And being in God's presence rightly and it not being a terrifying thing because Jesus has opened this new way for us. Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory. We praise you for the promise you made to Jeremiah that a new covenant was coming, that you fulfilled the giving of that covenant through Jesus. And today we get to live in that. Lord, I pray as your word reminds us of the blessings and the promises, these better promises, that we'll lift our eyes on Jesus. We'll keep our focus on him. Help us to hear his heart. Help us to know your work, your purposes. And Lord, I pray as we read your scriptures that they will always remind us of who our Messiah, who our Savior, our Lord, our High Priest is. That we'll live our lives following him, shaped by him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.